Blog Talk Radio. Slow down, touch your life. Don't you know there's friends to be found? Lift your eyes and see the world. Lift your eyes up. Welcome. To the Sunbury Press Books Show, sponsored by Sunbury Press, the publisher of books under nine different imprints in a variety of categories sold worldwide, wherever books are sold. I'm your host, Lawrence Knorr, and today I have Dan Joseph, a journalist living in the Washington, D.C. area, a graduate of Indiana University. We won't hold that against him. He spent over 20 years working for Voice of America. And he is a member of SABRE, the Society of American Baseball Research, something he and I share. We also share an interest in baseball. He's a lifelong fan like myself. And Dan is the author of Last Ride of the Iron Horse, which tells the tale of Lou Gehrig's final years in the final year in the Yankee lineup as he dealt with the effects of ALS. Dan, welcome. Great to have you on the show. Yeah, Thank so this you. is Glad a really yeah, it's a really interesting book. I know we were excited to to pick it up and very happy that you uh you came to Sunbury Press uh, to have it published. So tell us uh, what got you interested in Lou and and this particular season. Well, this was based on a thought that I had really maybe when I was back in college. I I've, I've always studied baseball. I, I was one of those kids who read the baseball encyclopedia before bedtime. And <laughs> there are a lot there are a lot of books about, you know, the Yankees and uh and Garrick. There have been at least a dozen biographies about Garrick. And the the books always treated Lou Gehrig's nineteen thirty eight season as sort of a prelude to tragedy. It was the year when he began to slow down and lose his strength and his output declined, and the Yankees still won the World Series, but I mean, everyone, all, all the writers tended to see this as sort of the uh, the looming tragedy on the horizon, and it is that, but I wondered how was he able to play as well as he did, given the fact that he had ALS. He, had, he was suffering the early effects. Um, he still managed to hit 295, 29 homers, 114 RBIs, which for any other player would be a great season. It just wasn't great for him. So it's kind of it's a thought that lodged in my head for years. And finally, a couple of years ago, when I was finishing up another book that I was writing, I thought, you know, now's a good time to launch into this one. And I just began uh, writing it almost on, uh, as, on my sp- in my spare time. Um, and it took about two years to finish, uh, and uh, and here we are. We're, we're live with Sunbury Press. Well, you've done a fantastic job, and I, as we were talking before we came on, there's a there's an anniversary coming up here, so it's very timely that we've come out with this. It's 80 years since a very famous speech you were telling me. Yeah, maybe you can um, talk a little bit about that that day. Oh, sure. It's the uh, 80th anniversary of uh, 
his famous speech at Yankee Stadium where he said, today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. Uh, that was the Yankees' tribute to him. Uh, two weeks earlier, he had been finally diagnosed with ALS, and finally everyone understood why he had slowed down so radically. It, he was only 35 years old, which is you know, still on the older side for a baseball player, but until 1938, he had never shown any signs of slowing down. He was still a 350 hitter. Um, and so this was the day when the team and all, really all of baseball in the city of New York gathered to pay tribute to him. And uh, there were 62,000 people in the stands. And this speech that he gave has gone down as really one of the most iconic in the history of sports Um and at Major League Baseball, every every time the anniversary comes up, they they do some sort of tribute on on their website, and it's 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 kind of lodged as sort of the really the main memory I think people have of Lou Gehrig. And the book is about mm-hmm. the year and a half leading up to this speech when he he was living a very active life. He he went out to Hollywood to shoot a movie, and then he came back to New York. Uh, and he signed for the highest salary in all of baseball. And then the season began, the spring training began, and people noticed that he wasn't quite the same. Um, and this is all in the book where uh, we, we, for the first time, I, I really tried to drill down and specify when did people notice that he yeah. wasn't hitting the same and when did people notice that he seemed to be slower on the base paths and in his fielding. Um, and um, there's a lot of specific information, which really has never been uncovered before. I was able to go into a lot of old newspapers and dig up information that I think eluded the previous biographers, not because they were bad at their jobs, but because they, it just wasn't available until a lot of websites were created to bring a lot of the old newspapers like the uh, the New York Sun, for instance, and the World Telegram, and, and plus the old issues of the Daily News and the Post and the New York Times, uh, bring them all back to the surface and make them easily accessible. I'm guessing that a lot of these papers, a lot of the newsmen probably were thinking, ah, he's just getting old, he's just slowing down. It's just, you know, Gary's probably finished because he's near the end of the line. And no conjecture at all about uh, fatal disease or anything like that. So I'm sure he he probably was treated, uh, you know, I, I don't know, somewhat kindly as far as the aging old uh, hero. But uh, I don't know. Give us give us a sense of that. What was the attitude that spring? Was it were they harsh about him, or were they were they kind of like saying, "Oh, it's about time. It was bound to happen." They weren't harsh about it, but they were of the attitude that he is 35 years old and this is when ball players begin to slow down generally. They did notice that he seemed quite different from the year before. And all yeah. year long they were harping on this fact. Um, it, 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 and then Garrett did his best not to let it get to him but in the book, I, I kind of cover how he how he was reacting to the pressure, and he he was hearing it from the sports writers, 
He was hearing it from the fans. He was even hearing it from the other players at times. Uh, uh, so there were some players who rather enjoyed the fact that he was struggling. But, um, again, I was able to dig out a lot of material, which I think just wasn't previously accessible. Uh, and uh, it, it, it's very interesting to see that you know, even without social media and the Internet and sports highlight shows, uh, the the media industry was able to cover his sudden decline and, and comment on it. And it actually is not that much different than what we see today. Although obviously the form is different. It's all written instead of spoken out loud or tweeted. So maybe we could put this season a little bit more in context. I think 38 Ruth is gone by then. I think Ruth left uh, several years before who were some of his teammates in 38 and who was his manager? His manager was Joe McCarthy, uh, who had been managing the Yankees since 1931. Um, And his teammates were several of the most famous and accomplished players of that time. I think the one that everyone remembers is Joe DiMaggio, who was in his third year as the center fielder for the Yankees. And the catcher was Bill Dickey, who – is a Hall of Famer, and he was Lou's teammate, I'm sorry, roommate on the road, on the Yankee road trips. Uh, the second baseman was Joe Gordon, who's also a Hall of Famer. Uh, another outfielder was Tommy Henrik, who he's not a Hall of Famer, but he featured pretty prominently in a lot of Yankee teams and stories and books throughout the years. Um and the pitching staff was uh, headed by Red Ruffing and Lefty Gomez, two Hall of Famers. Le- Lefty Gomez, in particular, he was a funny guy. He was uh, he, he was a renowned after dinner speaker for years, and he he would tell stories about Gehrig and Jimmy Fox and Ruth and and those kind of people. Um, it was a very good team. They were they won the pennant. They won ninety nine games, although. Strangely enough, late in the year, they slumped. And part of the reason they slumped was because Gehrig stopped hitting the way he, you know, he he had actually had a, let me back up a little bit. He had had a a kind of a revival mid-season, August actually. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things we cover in the book, that for about three weeks in August, all of a sudden, after struggling for most of the year, he came back. And he was his old self again. He was pounding home runs. He was driving in a lot of runs. And the Yankees, it it went from being a tight pennant race in the American League to the Yankees blowing ahead of the whole field. And then toward the end of the year, Garrick stopped hitting that way, uh, stopped hitting with any power. And so the Yankees actually lost. They had a losing record in September, even though they came back to win the World Series. Um that was their third World Series in a row. They, they were in the process of winning four in a row, which was the record at the time. So Lou was surrounded by a great team, and, they, and that actually probably helped mask his decline to some degree. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. So when, when we think about that, uh, 38, he has his ups and downs. By 39, 
he's giving this speech. So how much longer did did Lou Gehrig live after the speech? Mm, about 23 months. The speech was on July 4th. He passed away on June 2nd, 1941. Um, the book actually, the last chapter of the book covers uh, a lot of what was going on in his life during that time. Although I chose not to re, uh, I chose not to cover again the information that previous biographers found about you know his uh, his dealings with the Mayo Clinic and the doctors and the treatments and um, the the scene at his house during those last few months. I I tried to show that. Even though he was in declining health, he still actually got around to places. He could still walk, and and he was he appeared on radio shows. He would come to Yankee Stadium sometimes and kind of razz his old teammates. Um, he surprisingly enough was not a total invalid. He he continued to work. He um, he had a job with the city uh, parole commission uh, the mayor of New York gave him that job when he retired from the Yankees and he would actually come into the office and hear parole cases and even go to New York prisons and, and talk with inmates you know trying to determine who would get parole and who wouldn't um, he was he maintained a at least something of an active lifestyle all the way until maybe a couple months before he died and, and I think maybe this wasn't appreciated so much uh, yeah. by previous uh, writers or just commentators. Um, he, he, wasn't, uh, he wasn't confined to bed, and, and that was especially impressive uh, given you know, what ALS does to a person's body, which is to utterly paralyze them. Um, usually, usually people only live a couple of years, and he did live only a couple of years, but he kept plugging away, and he stayed active almost to the very end. One of them just the most ironic things about Lou Gehrig is his consecutive game streak, you know, the Iron Man. And I, I know we call this book, the last ride of the iron horse. He was thought of as just a tough guy, a working man who, you know, he was just almost invincible. He was always in the lineup yet. He's brought down by this wasting disease. It's uh, such a tragic story. Was there um he was. When did the streak? When did the streak end? I'm I'm trying to tap my baseball memory and think about when his consecutive game streak ended. Did that end in in the '38 season as well? No, he he made it all the way through the '38 season and then the World Series, and then in '39 he didn't look good during spring training and and Joe McCarthy threatened to bench him but decided to keep him in the lineup because frankly the Yankees were so good they could manage even with him um, struggling to hit and field. Uh, he made it eight games into the 39 season. And then finally uh, his, his, uh, his performance had deteriorated to a point where he decided he had to leave the lineup. So it ended on May 2nd of 39 uh, at 2,130 games. And then he never, he, did, he never played another game, although the book, uh, the book touches on this. You know, he wasn't entirely 
committed to staying out. He still wanted to get back in there. Um, and even as late as mid-season, you know, he was still taking some batting practice and, and throwing the ball around with his teammates, you know, just kind of hoping that things would magically turn around. But um, it wasn't to be. Yeah, so I I didn't realize that the streak ended pretty much near the end of it or at the end of his career in 39. So in 38, mm-hmm. this season that he's having his ups and downs and we're starting to notice the the effects of something, he continues to play every day and that's he plays every day through this which is which is astonishing makes you wonder if he had been given if he had broken the streak and taken some breaks here and there if he would have been more effective or maybe not who knows we'll never know um i am curious about he Dickie. uh, uh he had, well go ahead oh i was gonna say he he was playing in 38 not only with this the early effects of als um, he suffered back injuries. He he broke his thumb. You know, he uh, the Yankees at one point had six straight doubleheaders, and he just kept plowing ahead as if, you know, this, this was just a natural thing to do. He'd play nine innings every day. And wow. it, it's just a testament to how how tough he was and how, mentally strong he was in addition to physically strong because I I can't think of any except for Cal Ripken I can't think of any other player who would take on that kind of burden the, I mean the Yankees for years had backup first baseman who went an entire season without play yeah I imagine I know Pete Rose had a pretty long game streak at one time uh, nowhere near Derek's I know Pete Rose also had a hitting streak but he was the kind of guy when yeah. I, when I was growing up. You always thought was out there every day as well. And when you look at the modern players, the current players, there aren't very many that play an entire season, every game. They might be in every game, but they're not playing every inning. Um, it's it's rare. I, so. I think it's actually. Yeah, I, I think it's probably. You mentioned would Garrett have been more effective had he taken some days off? I suspect he would have been. I, I don't. I don't think it would have stopped the disease, but pro- probably in 1938, it, it might have helped if he had taken uh, some days off here and there. But you know, yeah. that was not his style. You mentioned his roommate was Bill Dickey, the Hall of Fame catcher. I guess a, a younger player at that time, Lou, 35. Dickey's probably late 20s. I think he played a few more seasons. Um, yeah, he played into the early, early to mid forties. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, did you find anything in your research about their relationship that season, or anything Dickey observed or even said later about that year? Was there anything he would have noticed by rooming with somebody like Lou Gehrig about this decline, or was he? There's just nothing out there about it. Well, no, there there are some things out there. I, I found an interview. Uh, Dickie gave toward the end of his life where he he recalled this incident where after Lou had been diagnosed and was no longer playing um, that they were in Washington uh, for a road trip. The, Lou continued to travel with the Yankees throughout the 39 season and uh, they got off the train at Washington Union Station 
And there were some kids who came up and Lou and, and Dickie signed autographs for about 20 minutes. And then the kids ran away and uh, Lou turned to his friend Dickie and said, you know, isn't that amazing? You know, they're, they're out here having fun and I'm dying. And that's significant because Lou's wife, Eleanor, tried to conceal the fact that his diagnosis was terminal. She convinced the Mayo Clinic to sort of leave that part out. But yeah. and, and doctors today, of course, wouldn't do that. But, but back then, that was a, not a, an uncommon thing to do when a patient had a terminal diagnosis. Uh, but obviously Lou, even, even two years before he died, he, he could see his body declining and he, he had either talked to somebody else or figured it out on his own that he was not going to live. And, and Dickie did observe, um, his decline during the 38 and the 39 season. Um, I think, I don't think I put this in the book, but there is, there is a story out there that one day he just saw Lou standing by a hotel window and just for no reason at all, Lou just fell down. Uh, his, his legs buckled. And so, you know, obviously Dickie knew that uh, something was radically wrong. Earlier, there, there's a story earlier uh, Dickie saw several years earlier. Um, Lou was being razzed by a teammate who was, his name was, I think, Jumbo Brown. He was about a 6'4", six, 6'5", six, guy. Lou was about 6'1". And Lou was saying, you better lay off me. You know, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to put up with this. And finally, the guy pushed Lou one too many times. And according to Dickie, Lou just kind of picked the guy up and stuffed him in a locker. Garrett was <laughs> legendary with uh-huh. strength. Uh, Charlie Geringer, who was another Hall of Famer, second baseman for Detroit, he said uh, he the line drives that came off Lou's bat, they, they were deadly. He, he literally said, you, you took your life in your hands when you tried to catch these things. Um, and for Lou's strength to just, to just drain away so quickly and dramatically, and it, it was very alarming to uh, Dickie and, and the other people around him, and finally, and, and to Lou himself, which is why he removed himself from the lineup. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering, as you say that, what his exit velocity and launch angle would have been. <laughs> With his modern yeah, exactly. Gary. <laughs> I, I, found a, I found a quote. I'm not, I'm not going to give it away here, but there, there is a quote about that in the book. Okay. When, he, when he suddenly – he didn't use the words exit velocity, but he said almost the same thing. And this, this is probably 75 years before that term was even coined. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, you know, a lot of people know Lou Gehrig through the movie Pride of the Yankees, and I know you probably watched a lot of things about Lou Gehrig, and I know we've talked about, you know, a little bit about the movie in past conversations. Maybe you could share a little bit about that that movie and it's, you know, how you felt about it when watching it in relation to what you were writing about. Well, now I think my opinion is is not necessarily shared by others. I actually I'm not a fan of Pride of the Yankees. It's interesting. G- Gary Cooper, he probably, in terms of his presence and his physicality, he, he was a good choice to play Lou Gehrig. But 
but as others have noted, his baseball skills were not good. And there actually isn't that much baseball in the movie. It, it, the movie focuses much more on Gehrig's rise to fame, you know, his coming out of, uh, not I wouldn't call it slums, but the tenements of New York City, and then his romance with uh, with his wife. And only at the end do they uh, start to cover the ALS angle. And I, I personally just don't think the movie itself is that great, but the speech at the end is very well done, where Gary Cooper enacts Gehrig's uh, July 4th, 1939 speech, although the movie makers rearranged the lines in the speech. Um, ah. to, so, it, so it ended with, today I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. In, in reality, Gehrig, that was the second line of his speech. Um, right. I think they, they, they did that in, you know, to increase the dramatic impact. And of course, there's, there's the fact that the real Gehrig speech does not exist in its entirety. It's uh, only four lines of it were recorded on film. That that was something I wanted to try to. Uh, I wanted to find the whole thing if possible when I was researching the book, and I thought I found it one day. Somebody told me that it was in an old episode of a, uh, a 1950s CBS show called You Are There. It was a history show. And I got a hold of it. I got a hold of a DVD. And you know something? I could see where someone would be fooled because whoever the producers got to uh, revoice the speech for Garrett did a great job. I mean, he had the accent and the inflections and the pacing down almost perfectly. And they put this Yankee, booming Yankee Stadium echo on his voice. Today, I consider myself. But yeah. it wasn't the real thing. Real close, but not not the real thing. So I'm still looking for that speech if it if it exists somewhere. Yeah, very interesting. Um, so nobody, no reporter actually captured a full transcript of it, or you have to you have to find the video of it. Um, for for some reason, the the newsreels that were covering it. They they didn't record the whole thing, and I I, I do wonder why. I, I the only thing I can think of is that they only had so much film in their cans, yeah. That uh, they just they didn't have enough for the whole thing, and uh, it was apparently broadcast on radio, but the station didn't record it. Nobody recorded it at home. Um, and strangely enough, the newspapers covering it, they all gave different versions of what he said exactly. So there, there still is some confusion over what precisely he said. And I tried to stay away from the uh, the guesswork versions and stick to what is pretty much known that he said in the book. No, you, you've, you've done a really good job of, of sticking to the record, and uh, we appreciate that. Well, listen, we have time for just one more question. I'm just going to ask you, what you're doing now, you know, what, what's in the immediate future for Dan Joseph, maybe some events you might be doing with the book. And then what are you writing? We have about a minute. I had, I previously wrote another book, which has nothing to do with Lou Gehrig called inside Al Shabaab. And that was a study of the, um, the East African, the Somali terrorist group. Um, I've written two books in a row and I think my family would appreciate it if I stopped writing for at least the time being. So uh, I'm just going to focus on 
on uh, Last Ride of the Iron Horse at the moment and promoting that. Um, I'm, I'm, I've been pushing it on my Facebook page, creating videos and, and uh, interacting with a lot of people. And I will be having some events coming up. I, I'm honestly, I don't, I, I don't have a particular place in time, uh, but uh, I will be out there talking about the book because I think it, it gives um, an a interesting and important account of Garrig's life that has never really been covered before. Uh, and it will change some people's ideas and conceptions about what was going on with him uh, as he struggled to play with ALS and then and struggled to and, and fought against ALS uh, in the remaining years of his life. Dan, Dan Joseph, thank you for joining us. Dan Joseph, the yeah. author of The Last Ride of the Iron Horse, How Lou Gehrig Fought ALS to Play One Final Championship Season. You've been listening to the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. Mm-hmm.